This is Transforming Sport. I'm Sean Heath. This week, Dr. Alex Channon sat down with me to discuss my work as a PhD candidate in the anthropology of sport here at the University of Brighton's Sport and Leisure Cultures Research Group. My research is in the area of child and youth competitive swimming, injury, embodiment, identity, and human water interactions. In this episode, I discuss feel for the water, both its biomechanical, sensual, physical, and social aspects, and how examining this concept may help youth swimmers manage their well-being through injury and illness. We also talk about the COVID-19 global pandemic and the current state of return to sport for youth swimmers, including the virtual piloting of Swim England's Level X Racing Series and the re-return to lockdown for youth swimmers in the UK. Additionally, I mentioned some of the policy implications of my research within competitive swimming and sport coaching more broadly. I have two recent publications on the effects of burnout and training maladaptation and the COVID-19 pandemic on youth competitive swimmers' well-being. These are in the edited volume, High Performance Youth Swimming, published by Routledge, and the academic journal Neos, respectively. I hope you enjoy today's episode. I'd like to start this episode today with apologizing to our listeners uh, for the few week gap that we've had in posting these episodes. Uh, as many of you might know, the UK has gone into a second lockdown uh, as of November 4th, so that put a bit of a wrench into our uh, production and recording of these episodes. Hopefully we'll be able to get back into a regular schedule um, starting with this episode today, and uh, hopefully you won't miss one until at least the Christmas break. So thanks for listening. Okay, hello everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of the Transforming Sport podcast. I'm Dr. Alex Channon, and uh, this time I'm not being interviewed by our presenter and host, Sean Heath, but I actually have uh, the pleasure of interviewing him uh, for a change. So we've uh, we've reversed our roles, and uh, I'm donning a different cap today. Um, and so, yeah, it's lovely to, to sort of welcome you, Sean, to, to the podcast to be interviewed. Um, I guess with the way that we'd like to start most of these episodes is to ask our, uh, our speaker, or our, you know, invited guests and so on to um, say a little bit about themselves, give us a little bit of background uh, in terms of their interest in sport and say, you know, a little bit about who you are and, and what brought you to um, to doing research on sport. So, um, yeah, Sean, over to you. Yeah, thanks, Alex. Uh, interesting to be in the hot seat this time around. Um, be on the other side of the uh, other side of the question question sheet. Uh, but yeah, looking forward to it today. <laughs> Yeah, so a little bit of my my sporting sporting background, I guess I'll start with. Um, throughout my youth, I played uh, dozens of uh, dozens of different team sports. Um, dabbled a little bit within individual sports, but mostly uh, major team games like baseball, rugby. Um, did football as well uh, into my into my later youth. Um, sort of dropped off at uh, middle of high school and high school, as as many many youth tend to. Um, within within sports and sort of didn't didn't stick with anything competitively after that and sort of picked up uh ultimate frisbee actually um in in university uh so that was a really interesting change of pace and uh, maybe ultimate frisbee is a as a conversation for another time but really sort of interesting game um you know requires no referees and is a little bit more egalitarian in the way it's uh sort of played uh or at least the the leagues that that i was in i know it, it can get quite quite competitive <laughs> Um, yeah, um, again, I, I do, you know, swimming, uh, research on, on swimming and competitive swimmers. Uh, and this is something that I've sort of been following 
um, since 2010, 2011, um, when I began doing research in my, in my undergrad actually on, on sort of masters, masters swimmers. Uh, and it moved sort of more from there. Um, I joined a master's swimming team in Vancouver, swam there for a bit, uh, did a little bit of research for a course in my undergrad and got really interested in about in the swimming, the swimming world, um, what it was all about. I'd never swam competitively myself, uh, as a, as a youth. Um, but I had gone through, you know, all of the swim to survive courses and then gone beyond that, uh, into lifeguarding and, and swimming instructing actually. Uh, and that sort of helped pay my way through, through university, uh, even up until now, a few years ago, um, when I, when I stopped lifeguarding and, and swimming instructing. So sort of came at it from that perspective, maybe a teaching background rather than a, a competitive sporting background or coaching background. Um, and I was just kind of really fascinated in, in the sport. Uh, a lot of my good friends, um, are coaches or were coaches at the time. Uh, and the, the whole idea of this hyper-competitive individualistic sport, um, but it seemed to be such an incredibly uh, social space. Uh, it seemed like these athletes were having a lot of, a lot of fun really being on the pool deck. Uh, and it, it seemed like there was a lot more going on than just, I don't know, your, your Michael Phelps or your Katie Ledecky getting up on the blocks and, you know, smashing out a world record at the Olympics. Um, and this sort of like one coach, one swimmer aspect. Uh, and I was really sort of curious and wanted to know more. It was sort of a, yeah, where, where my interest in, in competitive swimming, uh, sort of started. Yeah, absolutely. That, that sounds very, very familiar, I think, to a lot of the researchers that we've had on, on the show and, um, and also, you know, just, just researchers that we, uh, that we work with in, in our field, that there's, um, there's usually a sort of personal connection to a particular sport that leads into uh, these kind of extended research projects that we're going to be focusing on um, today and, and, of course, in the rest of the podcast as well. Uh, that exposure on a personal level, whether that's as a competitor reflecting on their own experiences or, or as, yeah, as, as you say, in your example, like a teacher or a coach, somebody who's... Um, peripheral to the, the sort of the, the competitive side but sees it from uh, you know behind the scenes and gets to sort of have a handle on um, some of the peculiarities and, and perhaps some of the, the contradictions that exist in, in these spaces and that opens up a you know a, a broad range of um, yeah academic problems and, and re interesting research questions that we like to get our teeth into so I mean, you've fairly diverse background in, in terms of sports and um, you know clearly a, a you know an attachment to competitive swimming and that um, that angle. So that led into your undergraduate and then postgraduate research, which you're now doing um, your PhD with us at the University of Brighton um, in, in the sort of field of competitive swimming. So I guess I guess the point now would be really to sort of tell us a bit more about the study that you're you're actually engaged in. Um, so what is the study that you're doing? What are the aims and, and kind of, you know, what, where are you at with it at the moment? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I'm doing my PhD at the University of Brighton. Um, and the, the study is really interested in looking at uh, embodiment in competitive swimmers. Um, and what I mean sort of by embodiment is, is looking at how these young athletes uh, and physical activity practitioners generate and, and create knowledge about their bodies and about their sport through their physical practice um, and get to know and understand sort of a sense of, of self. Um, through that, through that practice, through that, that movement and those, those techniques in the body. Um, and 
as a way of exploring that a little bit um, further, I, I thought to look at sort of the disjunctures that happen um, that, that break apart those periods of sort of mundanity of the everyday and looking at injury um, and looking at, at pain. Um, and that sort of led me on to looking at sort of the, the senses and um, particularly senses of kinesthesia and the tactile senses of, of touch as, as swimming is such a, a very much a, a feeling type of activity. You know, it's mostly done through, um, the tactile sensations of, you know, being in the water and, and feeling your way through the water. Um, that connection between skin, muscle joints, um, and the liquid medium. And I was really, I wanted to know, um, about how young, these young swimmers understand the, the pain and fatigue, uh, that is involved in a, in a hyper endurance sport, um, where they're training, so many, so many hundreds of hours uh, a year uh, and millions of um, arm strokes in the water. Uh, and then how that sort of translates into everyday sensations of pain and maybe how larger uh, and smaller injuries uh, affect um, that performance, um, that embodiment, that sense of self and, and their just their, their daily practice. Right. So to sort of um, try and get my head around some of those, those more complicated terms you just used, it's almost like, um, and forgive me for putting words in your mouth, maybe, but but how people come to know who they are and how people come to sort of realize their sense of self through these these physical practices that's that's central to what you're doing. Yeah, that's exactly it. It's it's really about a sense of a self and identity um, for these young athletes, not just as, you know, themselves, but as also as athletes, uh, as swimmers, as teenagers as you know boyfriends girlfriends siblings etc um and how that sport really feeds into that yeah sense of self yeah we, we hear a lot don't we about how sport is you know really powerful um as a, as a sort of tool for young people to discover themselves and build confidence build character and and you know make friends and all of those sort of you know we attach quite a lot of importance to sport in, in educative settings particularly and i think yeah that that's a um, an idea that we we often take for granted that it just happens right and and so to, to actually do research on how it happens and you know what kinds of, i mean you mentioned a minute ago i think we'll come back to um, later in the podcast as well, this notion of injuries kind of interrupting that process and, and how that becomes a you know, sort of disjuncture in, in, in that, that um, development of young people's lives. I think it's very interesting, you know, how if we do believe that sport is, is such an important and profound tool for building up young people, you know, let's spend a bit more time thinking about how that works. How can we maximize this process and how can we help them um, when it, when it sort of, breaks down and goes wrong right and, and that's that's kind of what i take from this that um you know there's something really profound and important going on here and we often just assume that we know what it is whereas you what you're doing is you're you're sort of using um you know, anthropological theory sociological theory and really digging beneath the surface and, and seeing you know, how this dynamic actually plays out um, in practice and um, one of the things i wanted to ask you about sean is, is in your writing you often mention this notion of a feel for the water um, what does that mean? Feel for the water, and, and how does that sort of figure into this this really important process that you're you're talking about? Yeah, of course. And I was just sort of talking about that a little bit. So um, it it really has to do with with the senses, right? Uh, in in a lot of ways. So our our tactile and, and kinesthetic senses. So so the way we understand the movement of our own bodies, um, both sort of internally, muscles and joints, as well as sort of externally, our our position of our bodies. Um, in, in the world and, and that movement. So feel is, is, you know, a, 
a sense, our sense of touch, sense of feel. Um, so that very much leads into what I what I mean when I talk about feel for the water. Um, feel for the water is also a, a technical term within competitive swimming. Uh, and it can mean a variety of different things, uh, but most often it's used to denote uh, traction on the water. So if you're trying to think of um, maybe tires trying to grip a, a slippery road surface um, or on snow or something, you'll see the tires spinning and spinning and eventually they'll grip and grab traction to be able to move themselves forward. So it's it's how much force um, swimmers are able to, to generate and put on the liquid surface with their forearms, with their hands, um, with their feet to generate that forward momentum. So, you know, how much, uh, often water you're holding, how much you're able to anchor a forearm in the water to then help propel yourself forward. Um, and that feel for the water is really something that's, I think, developed from even infancy. Um, from when you're, you know, if you've, your parents bring you to parent and taught lessons, uh, maybe if you have a pool or a lake or you're near the ocean, um, and you grew up, you know, in sort of an immersed and amphibious sort of setting. Um, I did the same. I took to swimming really early in life and really enjoyed the sensations of water as, as a baby, as I'm sure my parents will attest to, uh, and then sort of have always enjoyed the, the feeling of, of play and, and that movement sensation, uh, in in the liquid medium, uh, whether it's in the ocean or whether it's in a pool, a river or a lake. Um, and I think that that sense of, of touch, that actual tactility, um, of athletes in the water, um, doesn't fully disappear, but maybe to use an analogy, it's kind of like riding a bike. You maybe get a little bit rusty if you're out of the water. So you can hop back into the water and you'll, you'll understand that sense of feel, but you're not as able to capitalize on it. Uh, perhaps you, you don't have quite that as close, a, an understanding of the way your body's moving and, and how you're holding on to that, that water to move yourself forward. So, and feel for the water also extends to like, um, the, the social interactions that are happening in the club. Um, like if you're having say an, an off day on the rugby pitch, on the football pitch, on the cricket pitch or whatever it is, uh, your performance might dip, right? Like we've seen this a lot in, in athletes. There's a lot of talk about, um, sports psychology, sports psychology is huge and has been for the past sort of decade. Right. Um, and I think that feeds a little bit into feel for the water as well is the, the social and, and psychological aspect of it. If you're having an off day, um, if you're having a bereavement in the family, if you're maybe worried about a niggle, um, and a niggle, I mean like sort of a, a pain or something, uh, a small injury perhaps, um, or if you're overly focused perhaps on, on trying to attain a, a personal best time, um, that can all sort of feed into your your feel for the water. You might be having an, an off day because, you know, you had a, a bad test at school and you're worried about how your parents are going to react when you come home after your practice and your practice is poor and your feel for the water or just isn't there because you're thinking about all of these other things. So in that way, it's, it's really, I, I know I talked about a lot of things there and it seems like a, a really, but it is really a, a holistic concept that I think you can attach a lot of different significance to within competitive swimming. And it's a really productive concept outside of just, you know, the ability to move yourself forward in the water. Right. So there's a sort of a sense of, uh, 
um, you know, a broader kind of well-being that, that swimmers would be disrupted in a number of ways where perhaps their mind is, is elsewhere or perhaps they, um, you know, they're, they're too conscious of their own body if you're, if you're nursing an injury or, or something along those lines and that can interrupt your, your ability to perform. Is, is that sort of along the right lines that it, it's um, kind of this mind, body, wholeness and oneness that, that gives you a sense of a feel for the water and when anything's out of kilter, out of balance, then, then that's disrupted and, and you lead to this, this sort of disjuncture. Yeah, that's that's definitely um, definitely a part of it is is that that sense of well-being. Um, I think that's that's almost true with with any athlete, um, but particularly in, in a sport where you're you're so um, that that physicality is, is so different is it's so um, the margins are sort of so well slim uh, and, and the speeds so. Uh, maybe slow and fast at the same time. Uh, it's a really different way of sort of, of, of being in the world, being moving and, and doing your sport that I think can really affect um, these, these athletes and their, yeah, I guess their, their performance. Um, mm mm-hmm. I guess this this point would probably be worth um, rewinding a little bit. It's something that I might I should have asked you at the start, really. Um, who are these these athletes that you're doing this work with? Because you mentioned youth and young people a few times, um, and we're talking about you know quite high minded concepts here. But let's let's just sort of rewind a little bit, and you know who are these these swimmers, and um, you know what what do they do swimming for? What do they want? And, and you know, yeah, tell us a bit more about the world that you're you're occupying here. <laughs> yeah, sure. That's a, that's a great point. <laughs> sorry. Sorry to not mention that earlier. Um, yeah, as I said, I, I've done, uh, swimming work within, within Canada and the, and the lower mainland of Vancouver on the West coast. Um, it's where I sort of started a fair amount of my, uh, anthropological research on competitive swimming. Um, but, but currently I'm doing a study in the Southeast of the UK. Um, so I'm really looking at youth. Uh, and what I mean by youth is somewhere between the age of sort of 12 to about 18, 19 years old. Um, although there are a few ex, um, older swimmers within, within the study, um, who stick around in, in the local area. Um, yeah, so they're not your high performance athletes. They're not your Adam PDs. They're not your national center, um, uh, athletes, they're not uh, carded by Swim England um, or anything. Um, so I'm really looking at uh, quite a developmental stage um, in in their own swimming, in the development of themselves as well, and and in their lives. Right, the transition sort of from primary school to secondary school, secondary school to college, college to university. Um, so there's a lot of physical and social changes that are happening at this time um, that you might not see. Uh, at the older athletes in a, in a 20 plus, um, year old, let's say. Sure. So yeah, these are um, kids who are going through, um, various stages of sort of adolescence physically and, and also the, all the social dramas that play out in, <laughs> in those, those age groups. So I guess certainly um, to sort of circle back to, to the idea of, you know, sport as a valuable educational tool or sport as a, you know, really useful thing for young people to have in their lives for, you know, developmental reasons or for, you know, social integration or mental health and all those other things. Um, and, and I guess this notion of well-being, which we kind of touched on briefly, is is fairly important in um, 
for, for your study, but also for sport more generally. Um, and the fact that sport, a sport like swimming, can be a really profound source for, for young people to develop a sense of well-being and to, to make, perhaps maintain that in the face of, um, you know, the, all the various challenges and disruptions that they, they'll be going through at this time in their lives. Um, I, yeah, I, I can see that, you know, doing research on how this group maintains that and how they experience their sport participation can, can yield some really interesting insights. Uh, so I suppose we ought to move on to, to that sort of thing, really. Um, and what kind of things are you finding? So what, what kind of things are, are young people saying about, you know, the role and value of, of swimming in their life? And, and what kind of things does it, does it add, you know, in terms of the added value to their their experience? What, what kind of things are you, are you finding there? <laughs> yeah, I think so. For, for well-being in particular, for these young athletes, um, if we think about sort of... Um, defining maybe well-being is like the amount of resources that you have to face your challenges so whether it's the physical social psychological economic resources to any of those on the opposite side sort of challenges and, and trying to maintain some form of of balance or or equilibrium there um as as best you can um for these youth i think within swimming in particular it being an 11 month season um so really you get maybe three weeks off during august and um during the summertime and then you get about a week off during christmas um would be about about it um so it's it's really almost a, a full year full year sport the amount of time that these young athletes spend with their squad mates um with their club mates uh is is really profound um you know they they can be doing anywhere from about 14 to 25 hours a week in the pool um swimming alone that that doesn't include the um land training um and it doesn't include the stretching on or stretching off afterwards um it doesn't include the you know shower and social time that they have uh after while they're where they're getting changed and, and heading home or the all weekend um meets that are happening once a month once every second month um and that's you know 10 hours on the pool deck saturday and sunday for the, for those larger larger meets so the amount of, of time the, the the temporal um investment that these young athletes are putting into this sport uh is is really really large um and a lot of cases they they grew up with these with these same with these same peers almost like a, an age group um cohort that you would have in school um you know you grow up with sort of the same people you go through elementary school together maybe you go to the same secondary school together and then there's maybe a little bit of mixing um so in a lot of ways these these young athletes you know really really know each other really well and often their coaches as well if their coaches um stick around and usually it's a, it's a few years um and there's there's also sort of like the inter age and general uh mixing that you might not get in sort of an age group um in another age group sport where you have like a team of i don't know under 11s uh, for football right you get a bunch of 11 year olds and 10 year olds and nine year olds um, that see each other a couple times a week but these athletes might you know get to know some of the older um uh their, their older squad mates within the club uh, and develop relationships with them over time and, and sort of look up to them as, as mentors etc uh but for for the for their um yeah, sorry, I've sort of gone off on a tangent here. I'm not. <laughs> you, you were talking about um, this notion of resources for, for well-being, and I think that's that's really intriguing. That, that swimming offers young people 
resources and, and i think that you know mm. that's perhaps a um social resources there with with respect to peer groups and adult role models and even you know um older older children being being you know um important social connections for them um, that come through the swimming club um, so I guess you know what, what other kind of ways does, do these young people experience swimming as a as a, a provider of a resource for, for their well-being right I think one of the most one of the most interesting things that I've heard said on the pool deck um, or to me when I've added the odd interview with with uh, competitive swimmers is that the pool and the water, the water in particular, maybe not the pool environment, but the water um, can be conceived of as a, as a safe space um, or being in the pool and swimming is, is calming um, for them. But the, you know, the physical act of immersion and being underwater or being enveloped by water um, is, is sort of safe and calming for them. It, it's something that they, they know intuitively as intuitively as, as their own bodies and their body's ability to move in the water. So it's, it's this very sort of deep seated, I think physical, um, as well as sort of physical knowledge of their own movement practices, as well as the, the social knowledge of, of being in a, a supportive environment, uh, quite often. And there are odd cases where a coach or a club isn't a, a supportive, but for the most part, I think, um, they are really supportive uh, environments um, in in squads, or at least the the individuals do their their best. So yeah, I think that for youth really feeds into this sense of well being. You know, being able to get in the pool and be able to swim for a while um, to be able to work out their problems. I've they've, they've said to me, you know, and it's maybe not so much that you're in the pool, you're swimming for six or seven kilometers um, in a couple of hours. And you're, you know, rationalizing your way through a difficult time or an experience that you've had during the day. Um, but maybe that act of going through that practice and, and doing that, that physical endurance, um, that those problems potentially sort of melt away for them or they seem less significant or they don't worry about them as often. So, yeah, it's really positive, I think, overall, just just them getting in the water and <laughs> having a splash around. Yeah. Yeah, I think that a lot of people can relate to that sort of thing, it, whether it's in swimming contexts or, or in other sports contexts. And I'd always think about this with, in relation to my own sport and doing martial arts, where uh, particularly doing jujitsu is something that I've, I've taken up fairly recently. And the experience of being on the mats and, and you know moving around on the floor, particularly grappling somebody, is, is not something that I spend really any amount of time doing outside of that context. And I do liken that to, to this notion of a feel for the water, because it's it's a completely different uh, way of being you know being in your body you know you don't spend any time otherwise lying on the floor moving around on your back you don't spend any time otherwise immersed in water do you it's it's being in that that separate space and that separate sort of mode of existence where you're using your body for something very specific that is generally not I'm not going to say only but generally experienced in a very positive way as a, a chance for you to um, to have that sort of joy of movement or to to feel your own skill and strength or you know just that sort of really positive aspect that comes through doing something for its own sake you know swimming for its own sake or, or doing martial arts or whatever it is so I think that that notion of sport as something that is um yeah this sort of separate way of being this separate way of, of living in your and through your body uh, that gives you a chance to yeah like you say not think through all your problems but 
to just step into that other world, you know, almost like going into the matrix. <laughs> that you, you've got this alternate reality that you can be that you can be in, and um, you know the calming effect of that, the, the the settling and the balancing effect of that, I think is so so profound. Um, and obviously, you know, at the moment, I, I know we're going to come back to this later in the in the discussion, but um, being deprived of that that resource, you know, deprived of the ability to do that, I think is is having um, you know a major impact on on people who maybe. Uh, maybe took it for granted before, um, but not being able to go, you know, to public spaces to to exercise and to to enjoy that has, um, you know, certainly been been an issue for me. And I, I think, uh, I mean, it's got to be across the country. It must be hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of people affected by this right now, being deprived um, of that resource. Um, so I wonder if you could say a bit more about how the young people you've interviewed and, and, and worked with, um, how has injury interrupted or affected or, or you know been a part of this um, this relationship yeah so um i i've really been been privileged and, and and quite quite thankful of the club uh that i've been working with um as they've allowed me to do some some ethnographic a lot of ethnographic research which sort of entails being on the pool deck and and hanging out with the youth i don't have the physical skill to be able to keep up with them probably even the 12 year olds uh to be perfectly honest with you, even though I do swim a little bit of masters myself, uh, masters being sort of 25 and, and older for, um, as the, the amateur competitions. Um, so yeah, I've, I've got to uh, been fortunate enough to spend a lot of time, uh, observing and, and chatting with, with youth in their, uh, quote unquote, natural environment, uh, in the, in the built environment of the pool. Um, so I've, I've been able to, to see, and the, their struggles through injury, through niggles, um, and sort of through the rehabilitation out the other side, and as well as a lot of the prevention. Um, so that's that's been, I think, really positive. Sort of the, the longitudinal aspect of of the research that I'm that I'm doing um, with the, as well as the the interviews to talk with these youth about their experience of injury. Um, and I think for a lot of them, injury can be quite crippling. Uh, in maybe both senses of the word there is in that it, you know, can prevent them from getting into the water, from being in that space with their, with their peers, um, socializing and hanging out and chatting on the pool deck before and after school. Uh, if it's a broken wrist, well, you, you can't really get in the water and, and swim. Most of your propulsion comes from your, your upper body and your arms. So you're not going to be using that, that one arm, um, and what I did notice is a lot of the time the swimmers themselves would do their best to encourage. And they, they talked about this to me as well is their, their, their peers encouraged them to sort of still get in and, and do something and, and their coaches would as well. So, um, if you have a, a broken wrist, uh, maybe you can put, um, a waterproof cast on it, you know, you can put a, uh, silicon socks they have now for, for limbs that you can sort of keep things dry. Um, or if you have a shoulder injury, you can get in and still do a kick set. Uh, and peers would often, even though you're not doing the same set as them, uh, they would say that, you know, their peers encourage them, uh, to stay in, you know, to keep doing the kick set to, even though they're not doing exactly the same thing, it would be, you know, yeah, like great job. Like you did like really well for sticking in and actually doing the kick set. Obviously you're not doing exactly the same work. So I think they, they expressed that it, it felt a little isolating for them at times. Um, 
but any opportunity that they could to continue to be in the water through injuries, um, uh, they, they, they would take it as long as it was, uh, safe for them. Um, obviously with, with larger illnesses and larger injuries that took them out of the water for extended periods of time, um, they would often talk about behavioral shifts, um, in their, in their own moods, right? They feel antsy. They didn't know what to do with their time. Obviously you're, you're doing 25 hours a week in the pool, right? That leaves you very little time to spend with sort of peers and do other extracurricular activities, um, let alone maybe homework. Uh, so then suddenly you're, you're deprived of that. You're like, well, what do I, what do I do? Do I sit here on the couch and watch Netflix? And you know, you're, you're sort of physically geared at that point. Um, after doing that practice for, you know, maybe a decade, um, to, to want your body wants to continue to do that practice, to move, right. To be active. Um, and so, yeah, they would, you know, have had these behavioral mood shifts, didn't know what to do with their time, got antsy, got a little, um, maybe snippy towards parents that they would say, uh, and just sort of generally missed, um, that activity, missed their peers as well. Yeah. Something that's really interesting to me is, how um, I mean, this happened in, in professional um, sport. The professional athletes will will often ignore injuries, and they will risk, um, you know, aggravating them quite severely for for the sake of continuing to play. And we could say in professional sport, there's there's probably a you know strong financial incentive to um, you know to ignore injury and to to try and protect one's career prospects and what have you. Um, but in amateur sport, we also, and in youth sport, we also see this kind of behavior, this kind of denial of injury and, and um, pushing through pain and doing things which, on the one hand, you know, it makes sense when you talk about this as a really profoundly important aspect of their, their holistic well-being, that they, they continue to be part of the social group and part of this um, activity, which they love so much, this embodied sort of feeling. Um, but on the other hand, you know, continuing to push through certain injuries would, would end up with a catastrophic long-term consequence where they have, they can't do it ever. You know, if they're, if they're, you know, cripplingly injured or, you know, the career is, is over um, before it's really begun. So I wonder if you've seen anything that's like, um, sort of a negotiation, a sort of trade-off between, well, I, I know I have to rest, even though it's, it's frustrating or, you know, I know it's a risk, but I'm coming back anyway because I can't take this anymore. Um, what, what kind of thing have you seen there in terms of how people balance and appraise those, those sort of risks and, and the balances between them? Yeah, I think it's it's really different at the the youth and sort of amateur level. Um, if we're thinking about these these risks and sort of the return to sport, as it were, uh, youth often don't have access to the the doctors, um, the physiotherapists, the chiropractors that professional athletes do. Uh, and even though they they might here uh, in the UK with with the NHS, the, the wait to see a physiotherapist can be up to six weeks. Um, so by that time, you've if you've continued to swim on a, on a shoulder injury and not seen a physio, um, or your doctor, potentially you have done long-term damage, um, to that limb, to that joint that, that may never heal. Um, so the, the wait times could be really, maybe really detrimental. Um, and the cost is also really expensive for, for single, um, if you want to sort of do a private, private physiotherapy. Um, but I think these, these youth, they, they train so hard for the, for their, their sport. They really like to swim fast. Um, they, they, they enjoy these swimming meets. So they, they train so hard for these, these events that they, they really want to 
get that new PB. They want to impress their parents. They want to show their peers that they've been working hard, their parents that they've been working hard. They don't want to let other people down or themselves down. And they often really want, you know, to get in and swim and race. And to have an injury and to have that sort of taken away from them can be really really difficult you know it'll lead it'll lead to tears uh in a lot of cases um and i have seen some really good practice i think um from both coaches parents and and swimmers and good negotiation to modify their physical practice in the water so say you're swimming um butterfly and your shoulders are really hurting okay, we're not going to swim, but you're not going to swim butterfly. You're not going to do the arm motion for butterfly for a while. Um, and maybe we're going to do breaststroke or we're going to do freestyle or we're going to do backstroke, or we're going to do something without arms until that motion for you is no longer impinging. It's no longer hurting. It's no longer causing you pain. And we're going to figure out, you know, the, the physiology of how your body is moving so that these actions don't cause you pain. So often it's also done on kind of an individual individual basis. As all bodies, particularly youth bodies, are all different uh, and they're all growing and they're all shifting, often radically, you know, five inches in a couple of months um, of growth, potentially, uh, for a lot of these, a lot of these youth. Um, so there's kind of like this, this constant negotiation, I think, between their growing bodies and their understanding of their own bodies and movement practices, and then their feelings of, of pain and trying to negotiate that with, with their coaches, with medical professionals, with parents, and with the expectations put upon these young athletes. So it, it's really, yeah, it can be, it can be really, I think, frustrating and, and difficult for them um, if, if they are injured. Um, to to try and maintain you know one foot in in the water to say uh and and one foot out if they're trying to recover yeah so i I think that brings us naturally um back to what we've sort of flirted with before which is addressing the the elephant in the room right now for for swimming and for all sports really which is you know at the time of recording we're on our second national lockdown in the uk uh, as a response to the coronavirus crisis. Um, and obviously the pandemic has had numerous detrimental impacts on, on people's lives. And those of us who are heavily invested in sport, I think one of the, the, the more immediately obvious ones is that we haven't been able to do sport, at least in, in the ways that we normally would have done. And with all of this in mind, you know, this how important the feel for the water is and the social connectedness and that sense of safety and perhaps freedom of expression and joy of movement, all of that being conceived of as you know, a really powerful resource for for protecting well-being um, at a time when we have to stay indoors and we're scared about the virus and we've potentially had family bereavements and maybe parents are having financial troubles and we've taken away that source for that resource for well-being. Um, what what kind of things are the young people that you've worked with? What are they what are they going through? And, uh, and I guess sort of. To, to try and combat that, what is swimming doing? What what, what can be done um, even um, to sort of alleviate things right now? Yeah, so I think it's really interesting. Um, in a lot of ways, I guess we're a little bit fortunate that the first lockdown happened over the summertime. Um, so a lot of a lot of youth had maybe paddling pools in their in their back garden, uh, and their parents set up 
uh, these jerry-rigged bungee cords so that they could do a little bit of paddling around in their pools. Um, and, y- and you saw some of the top uh, British swimming athletes have uh, big, like, 15-meter, basically, jacuzzi hot tubs dropped into their backyards by cranes. Um, uh, Adam Peaty's a good example of this, so that they could sort of continue to train uh, in their own in their own homes. Obviously, that's that's not realistic for the... 99.99% of the swimming population in the UK. Um, but they sort of, I think, uh, took the message uh, and said, all right, well, we'll see what we can to, to get in and, and do a little bit of paddling around and, and, and got out and did some sea swimming too because we're fortunate to be on the, the south coast here. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of places it was warm enough. Now that we're moving into the winter, winter months and it's getting a little colder i don't think swimming outside in a in a non-heated pool uh, is going to be possible anymore um so i think a lot of a lot of the youth um well all, all, all the swimming youth have had to move to land training only which was something that they you know they would do to supplement their their regular training um as like a sort of cross training type type activity um but now it's sort of the only thing that they have so a lot of them got to explore maybe running distance for the first time if they you know hadn't played football um or rugby or another endurance type event uh, maybe they took up cycling um and and this is you know allow them to explore maybe different physical activities that they wouldn't have done otherwise um if this this hadn't occurred so that's that's kind of kind of interesting um but obviously sort of well we came back and then we're now into lockdown again but in that short interim period of of where we were uh swimming pools were were back open between um september and uh last thursday the fourth of november um pools some pools were open in the uk uh, and a little bit of swimming did happen. And Swim England actually put together a online racing uh, competition that they designated Level X Racing. So kind of like a, a virtual competition where there would be a leaderboard. People would submit uh, their racing times throughout the UK. And this would all be done in clubs um, so that social distancing could occur. You wouldn't travel to different clubs. You would just do this literally in your training uh, in your training times, a couple of parents would come onto the pool deck with some stopwatches and you'd have an, an official to to make these as, quote unquote, official times as possible um, without having uh, a full sanctioned um, Swim England meet. So that, I think, provided the youth something to train for. Because speaking with them um, digitally uh, during this time, as uh, all face-to-face research is sort of shut down uh, throughout the UK and, and, and most of the most of the world, um, it they they said that you know they are they actually really wanted to race. They missed racing. They missed having the other team on the other side of the pool, um, the other uh, competitors standing up beside them and, and getting into the water and you know giving it giving it their best shot. <laughs> Uh, so this gave them something to like, okay, yeah, we get to, we get to race. We get a little bit of that taste of that activity that we train so hard for, um, something that is, you know, very much a part of competitive swimming. You don't, you don't have the, it it would, then it would be just be training to train rather than sort of training to, to compete. Uh, so they, they're, they're really, 
looking forward to that. And they, they got a couple of, a uh, couple of races in before this, the, before the second lockdown happened. Um, and I think that might be something that will continue these level X racing post, um, post vaccine potentially in the new year, um, and moving forward. Uh, but again, it's, it's slightly, it's slightly different, right? You're, you're not getting up on the pool with mm-hmm. a thousand other kids, um, from seven different clubs or more, uh, and, and racing in a sort of big auditorium over the weekend. You're just sort of doing it in, in practice. So it is, it is slightly different in that way, but I think they really enjoyed the opportunity to, to get up and race, even if it was only for, for 200 meters again, before the second lockdown. Sure. So there, there was some sort of uh, attempt to, to replicate, um, if not the, the entire experience, but elements of it to, to bring people as close to that, that, um, perhaps that emotional connection and that, that motivation that they, uh, they can derive through competition as we, as we're able to. Um, I, I do find it quite interesting that you mentioned actually, um, you know, besides the the connection with swimming and the ability to keep some swimming activity going, um, that young people are trying different sports because it's sort of had their, their hands been forced almost to take up running instead or, or to, you know, um, play, um, you know, other, other sort of land-based activities that they wouldn't otherwise have a chance to do. And you mentioned... Uh, you said 25 hours a week training. I mean, that, that sounds pretty, pretty involved to me, pretty, pretty, um, you know, all consuming really. And, and I guess that sort of opens up, um, some questions. Um, and I know we don't really have time to get into this, this whole debate, but some questions around early specialization and the sort of preclusion of, of, um, you know, alternative activities in in young people's lives, if they're so heavily invested in one sport that they don't get a chance to try anything else. And then maybe we could, if if we're sort of taking that to its logical conclusion, it's probably a good thing to have some diversity in in our experience. And maybe there's a silver lining to to all of this in in so much as it it gave people something, a a chance to try something else. Is that kind of the, the, the narrative that's come through from them? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, this was shown in not just in the narrative, but the the actual practice, the 12 to 16 year olds, six months out of the pool back in the in the pool training for maybe two weeks or two months or uh, mid uh, maybe. Uh, yeah, August intensely um, and then a little bit and then September before racing, um, they were personal best timing, you know, so they had six months out of the water two months back in the water and they're already swimming faster, uh, than they were. So I think, you know, I, I'm sure there has, there probably needs to be like a national survey on, on some of this, um, to see larger numbers, uh, as this is a you know, small case study that I have, but I think it, it, it might be, uh, an interesting area to explore. Like, you know, why, why do we need our, our 12 to, to 14 year olds actually swimming this amount of time? Maybe we can actually have a summer break for them. Um, I know something that sort of occurs in North America is they have summer swim clubs, which only swim four months of the year, sort of May to August, uh, which is a different model. Uh, and I think the competitive swimmers who swim winter club swimming or sort of year round sort of snigger a little bit and, uh, and laugh and, you know, it's no, oh, it's not real sport sort of like masters and amateur is, is considered, oh, sort of laughed and laughed and looked down on by, uh, the high performance athletes. But, um, yeah, there's maybe an alternate an alternative way to, to look at, at this competitive sport. Maybe we don't actually need to train that much at that young of age. 
I suppose that that brings us around to a, something of a, a general observation about the the whole COVID situation is that it has made us, um, on the one hand, re reevaluate what really matters and, and stop taking things for granted when we've suddenly lost them and missed them, uh, but also explore possibilities for doing different things that we wouldn't have otherwise um, entertained, like yeah, the swimmers breaking from the norm and doing something different it actually benefits their swimming um, as well as um, probably you know giving them something fun and interesting to try that's, that's different. Um, and at the same time, we've got Swim England developing um, this, I, I forget, what did you call it? Um, Competition X? Uh, Level X Racing, yeah. Level X Racing, yeah. And that sounds really, really great, doesn't it? The, the idea to, to use, um, you know, locally sourced times and, and to, to build a leaderboard around that. I think that could, that could be something that, as you say, would probably, um, probably see that continuing, uh, if not for highest level competitors, then certainly something for, um, you know, for, for perhaps swim clubs that where there isn't a budget to travel around the country to meets all the time that, that can facilitate, you know, greater participation and, and inclusion of, of people in, in a sort of nationwide ranked um, sort of thing. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, I guess that, you know, COVID has, has thrown up opportunities as well as challenges to um, to the swimmers. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, you know, yeah, Level X Racing, this leaderboard, as well as maybe virtual galas, uh, if a club has the um, the technological means and, and someone to, to put that together is, yeah, really provides a lot of opportunity, I think, for these, these smaller clubs, even these middling size clubs, um, and people just sort of in local areas that aren't part of the performance pathway, uh, for swim England and British swimming and aren't swimming at the highest echelons of competitive swimming to, yeah, do a little bit of, of virtual traveling and, and still get to compete against, um, people outside of their, their County and their, and their regional bubble. Absolutely. Yeah. So necessity being the uh, mother of invention or, or however that saying goes. Um, yeah. So it's a, little, a bit of a silver lining, perhaps. It's not not all terrible doom and gloom um, at the moment for, for young people in sport. Um, well, Sean, that's that's pretty much all the questions that I had for you. Um, so just sort of to summarise, the, the study is is looking at how young people in swimming um, experience their, their bodies moving through the water and how that becomes um, not only a, a really important uh, physical and psychological resource for them to, uh, to manage with life's various stresses and problems, but also social connectedness with others they, they swim with and specifically looking at the ways in which that resource gets destroyed disrupted through life transitions, through injury, through uh, various of the things that might happen um, and paying attention to how young people then work that out and negotiate it. Um, I guess to sort of to, to close on, um, what would be, and I know you haven't completely finished your study yet, but with the findings that are coming in, what, what kind of implications and what kind of um, this sort of practical, um, maybe policy advice or coaching advice, what, what kind of things are coming out of your study that you could use or that you could see being used um, to, to sort of develop and, and improve um, young people's lives in swimming? Yeah, I think like we talked about, um, maybe looking at a different way to, to run the, the swimming calendar. Um, and I'm not a high performance coach and, and don't really know the sports science behind it, uh, as maybe well as <laughs> most other, other high performance coaches do, but maybe there's a discussion to be had there to, to reduce some of the, uh, this high hyper specialization that that's going on in, in sport and the, the gunning for, for high, uh, for the echelons of, of world record times, et cetera. Um, and I think, a lot of what I'm finding out and I think a lot of what can be brought into the coaching um, discussion and policy discussion is is really it's happening in a lot of ways to some of the best coaches that I've had the pleasure of working with um, is looking at it as 
really a, a mentorship role in coaching. I think not just, you know, trying to put in the, the hours into these athletes to get them to do the meterage, um, you know, to create a, a body that is, uh, able to, to, to be at the highest levels of performance, but really co- coaching the, the person, the human being, um, behind <laughs> behind this body and then seeing where, where that where that goes and, and there's a lot of really good coaching work uh we had um jim wallace on the, on the podcast talk about that a little bit and then um yeah that's that's probably that's probably sort of the the best the best thing to come come out of this is that is that really working with with these youth on an individual basis as well Right. Trying to trying to work for their needs and working on understanding where they want to go with the sport and what they want to do with it and tailoring their experience um, around that rather than maybe trying to fit everybody into a national ranked athlete progression model. But saying, do you want to reach counties? Do you want to reach regionals? Do you want to swim at the nationals? Maybe do you want to take this to university? Maybe do you want to take this into coaching? Um, so you don't want to actually swim at you know the national level, but regionals will be fine for you. What do you want to do with this? Um, and then having those individual discussions with those with those athletes um, and sort of creating a program, maybe for everybody rather than just a general program. Yeah. Right. So kind of a sort of a priorities check, really, you know, what, what is what is sport for for young people and then how are we delivering sport in order to meet those those ends? Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. When we, when we foreground that notion of well-being and, and, you know, really try and capitalize on those widely held generalized ideas that sport is good for building character um let's drill down into the specifics of that let's look at exactly how we can do that and perhaps yeah prioritizing um, for some some swimmers prioritizing competition maybe for others prioritizing other aspects um in, in our relationships as coaches exactly Okay, well, Sean, thank you so much for talking us through your your project. It's a fascinating discussion, and I think an awful lot of relevance at the moment, particularly around this theme of, you know, disjuncture and, and how do we cope when that powerful resource is taken away from us. Exactly. Uh, so, all to to reflect on. Um, so, thank you very much for for uh, coming on and and uh, answering the questions this time around. Um, and I guess we can probably round it all off there. Perfect. Great. Yeah. Thanks again for having me on, Alex. listening to this episode of transforming sport special thanks this week to alex channon senior lecturer and member of the sport and leisure cultures research group at the university of brighton for additional production assistance this podcast is run by the sport and leisure cultures research group at the university of brighton produced at the university's eastbourne campus you can tweet at me at sean mr heath or the slc research group at sport underscore research you can always find more information about the research group uh, through our podcast home on the internet at anchor.fm slash transforming sport.